The following content is explicit. It's Wednesday, February 14th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca in Florida, around uh, the Sarasota region. They had a special election yesterday for the state house, and their Democrat, Margaret Good, beat Republican James Buchanan. She overcame a big Republican-leaning district. It was a Trump district. And so in a way, with her defeat of James Buchanan, you could say she bested two of the worst presidents in U.S. history. Yes, James Buchanan. I guess it's good to go into politics with the name of an established, successful politician. And James Buchanan was a president, so you have to take his candidacy seriously. But it was also the worst president, or maybe the second worst president. So kind of a double-edged sword. Statisticians estimate that a Democrat can beat a Republican in a heavily Trump district so long as the Republican is named either James Buchanan or Warren G. Harding, possibly Franklin Pierce. Names are stupidly important when it comes to getting elected. Like in Chicago, the Chicagoland area, there's a guy running for judge named Shannon P. O'Malley. Turns out it's a big Irish area because when the guy was running for judge as his real name, his given name, Philip Spiewak, he didn't do so well. He also changed parties, trying to gain the luck of the Irish there. My favorite changing your name or endorsing a different part of the name to get elected is going on in Arizona. So there, a guy named Bob Stump sat in Congress for 26 years. I'm going to guess he was very active. This Stump was, and he died in 2003. And now on the ballot, there's a 46-year-old who is going by Bob Stump. I think most people know that the old Bob Stump died, but maybe this is son of Stump. It's not. Nancy Stump, the widow of the late Bob Stump, wrote, I want to set the record straight. There is only one Bob Stump, and that was my late husband. This new guy is a guy named Christopher Robert Stump, and he used to go by Chris Stump until he started running for office in that very district in Arizona, and he called himself Bob Stump. There is only one Bob Stump. And then Christopher Stump, or as he calls himself now, Bob Stump's mother came back and said, no, we got a lot of Bob Stumps in the family too. Just not Chris. <laughs> Stump is not the favorite in his district that was repped by Gabby Giffords, but the district also, it is very Republican, actually. It uh, voted for Trump by 21 points. Trent Franks was the congressman there. He's leaving. It'll be a special election. It is still listed by the Cook Political Report as a safe Republican district. Will it stay that way? I'm stumped. But you know, if you get the right candidate in there, you know what I'm thinking? I think we need to run Millard Fillmore for Congress. Not the real Millard Fillmore. We'll just get Phil Spiewak to change his name one more time. In the spiel, a lawyer's out-of-pocket expenses, parking, copying, paying off porn star. But first, I'm going to give you a pie chart. This is an audio pie chart. Here's the pie. There's a lot of little slices and about a quarter of it. And there's a big slice, a third of it. That's how much the federal government spends on Social Security, unemployment, and labor. Our pie chart is the federal budget. The next big slice, Medicare and health. And those things, Medicare, Social Security, those are called entitlements. So the thing that we could really control, if we wanted to, was the next huge slice of the pie takes up almost 20%, and that is the military and that is what we will be talking about with Dan DeLuce of Foreign Policy.
The new White House budget proposal includes a huge increase in military spending. The good news is no one will really pay attention to this budget proposal. The bad news is that the actual spending on the military will go up a lot, but maybe that's good news. The military needs it. Let's question the premise, though. Joining me now is Dan DeLuce. He covers the military and spending for foreign policy. Hello, Dan. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. The military, in terms of uh, discretionary spending, is it's a lot. It's a lot of the budget. It's like yes. uh, it's like a third of the budget. Is that right? Yes. You know, six hundred and eighty-six billion is the latest request. Yeah. And it actually peaked under Obama, which I don't think everyone would would assume. Adjusted for inflation, it peaked in twenty ten, when there was the big surge of U.S. troops into Afghanistan. We had hundred and thousand boots on the ground at that point. So I hear Democrats and Republicans both say we need to upgrade and they might list the number of ships in the Navy or the uh, B-1 and the B-2 or our fighter jets or just military readiness. There seems to be something approaching a bipartisan consensus that you don't get on most issues, that we do need increased military spending. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, that was not always the case, right? I mean, there was a time when there was a pretty big chunk of the Democratic Party would argue for much lower defense spending. And now it really is one of those bipartisan areas of common ground. I think you saw that, you know, with Clinton and uh, the Democratic Party trends in the 1990s, right? So people don't question this. And there are various reasons for that. I think politically you don't get anywhere going after this unless you're like uh, representing certain parts of San Francisco or Boston, right? And <laughs> yeah. so, or Manhattan. So that's one part of it. And the other thing is there is a constituency for it, right? I mean, there are defense industry uh, manufacturing sites spread out all over the country, right? Uh, they build subs in Connecticut. They build aircraft in California and the deep south. Name the state the defense industry has managed to put some kind of factory in it. That's another aspect. It's, it, there's a jobs issue that always gets mentioned. And then there's this bigger issue, right, which is st- strategic commitments. This is all the things the U.S. believes it needs to be doing or ready to do. So we have NATO and we have the alliance with Europe and all the commitments that go with that that's left over from the Cold War, really, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's the Middle East, And we worry about the free flow of oil and trade. So, well, we've got to be there. Uh, And so next thing you know, you have 200,000 troops all over the world right now. Right. So I guess a fundamental question that I have is we are engaged in maybe one and a half shooting wars. You know, certainly Afghanistan and then Iraq is still not totally settled. And if you want to add in our commitments and uh, the advisors and uh, soldiers and so forth in Syria. Is the number of active wars we're involved in, is that directly correlated to military spending? Because you just laid out this picture of America as essentially the world's policeman, but that doesn't mean we're pulling the trigger. Uh, But we are, to some extent, pulling the trigger. And is that a main driver of military costs? I I don't think so. It's part of it. But if, if you get down to it, right, a lot of those places you mentioned, those are not sophisticated adversaries with high tech weapons and anti ship missiles and, you know, anti aircraft weapons that can shoot our fighter aircraft out of the air. Right. Mm -hmm. So what drives it? Actually, if you get down to it, I would argue it's China, China and to a lesser degree, Russia. And the argument is, well, this is where China is going. 
we have to keep the U.S. technological edge. For example, people worry about uh, anti-ship missiles and uh, various missiles that the Chinese are developing that would kind of render our, our Navy or our aircraft less capable. What are we developing in response? What kind of robotic drone cyber weapons and swarms of drones are we getting for all this money? So so this is all equipment and weaponry that, God willing, we won't have to use. That is the argument, yes. Uh, and we haven't even gotten into nukes. <laughs> and yeah. this defense budget makes a big investment in nuclear weapons. Although for years during the Cold War, it was argued that in terms of bang for the buck, nukes are uh, a good investment. That's right. The idea was, okay, we're going to have the, the most powerful nuclear arsenal and no one's going to mess with us. Uh, and it'll be this mutually assured destruction with the Russians, with the Soviets. Uh, and so that's going to keep the peace. And of course, the other aspect of defense spending uh, is there, there is this kind of argument you hear, especially right of center, which is that, you know, Reagan helped win the Cold War, that the big defense buildup in the 80s and big layouts of, of uh, defense spending kind of drove the Soviets into submission, that they just could not keep up. And uh, when he announced his whole, uh, what was called the Star Wars initiative, the the missile defense uh, idea that first started back in the 80s, this drove Moscow uh, crazy. It it really got them worried. And uh, so there are some people who argue that if you you spend enough on defense, you you maintain your edge over your adversaries and you you keep them guessing. Yeah, except, uh, okay, so if we want to cherry pick in the case of the USSR, that's an example, it is said, where U.S. spending spent them into submission. But as you just said, with the case of China, the argument is, well, we have to keep up with their spending. So it's whichever argument suits you as long as we get to more spending. Yes. And of course, there is the thing that Eisenhower warned us all about, which was the military-industrial complex. And uh, if you look at the careers of most um, most admirals and generals, uh, after they retire, they go to work for the defense industry. It's not an accident, right? They end up going to work for Boeing and Northrop and so on. And by the way, when this budget was... Uh, Unveiled on Monday, you know, the defense companies like Northrop, their stocks went up. Uh, So there is that aspect to it, too. But it's also kind of habit, isn't it? This is this is what the U.S. has been doing for years now. And again, you would think we would have more of a debate on this. We are sorely lacking in a kind of thorough, robust political debate where we discuss why it is we should be spending money on all this and, and why do we need yet another aircraft carrier. It's mainly arguing about why my state, Alabama, should be building uh, the next bomber and not your state. Is there any way to know if we've gotten military spending right, pretty much right? What will tell us that, yeah, this is a good amount? Is it winning wars? Because I have never heard it argued that any of this this 17-year war in Afghanistan, I've not heard it argued it's because we haven't spent enough on it. That's right. You will never hear that argument. You're absolutely right. I think uh, there probably are some lessons from World War II, believe it or not. That was a case where we went, you know, preceding the war, of course, we did not have massive defense budgets at, at that time. We didn't even have an industrial base that was uh, all geared up and ready to churn out ships and tanks and planes. But when the threat was recognized, the whole country and the government and industry mobilized and was able to produce what was required. Um, and, you know, it's now known as the arsenal of democracy. And there are people, well, now experts will tell you now that if we had to do that again, we would be hard-pressed. It's a whole new era, right? It's not the 1950s where you just, the government tells a big corporation, this is what we want. Here's all this money for research. 
build it, right? It's a whole new world. The U.S. government now has to go to Silicon Valley, has to go to tech companies and say, what have you got going? What can we work with you on? The innovation can't be directed anymore from the government. Mm. Has anyone done any research or looked hard at the correlation between diplomatic belligerence and the need for military spending? Because again, I have heard it argued that effective diplomacy winds up saving a country a lot of money in the long run. So what about when the opposite is happening and button size is being compared? That is a really important point to make right now. The Trump yeah. administration at the same time is proposing this budget is gutting the State Department. And Secretary Mattis, the Defense Secretary, put it really well, actually. He said, we have two powers, the power of intimidation and the power of inspiration. And if you just focus on intimidation, you're going to be fighting more wars and you're going to have more problems. So sometimes when it comes to military spending, you know, an argument is we're down to the fewest number of ships. It's the Navy, for instance, 460 mm -hmm. or so ships, 450 something ships. They count the number of ships. This seems to me like, um, I don't know, an 1860s way of assessing totally. naval totally. readiness. Uh, there are people uh, in Washington who will get very serious with you uh, if you start making jokes about this and they'll say, no, no, no. There is something to the numbers. You have to have the right mix of ships, the right mix of destroyers and smaller literal uh, combat ships. I believe that. And we're, and we're not building enough new ships, and the old ships are going to start expiring, and we need a 355-ship Navy. That's, that's the magic number, 355. You hear this constantly. And now they have a 30-year plan to get there. So even with all this money, it takes a long time to build that many ships. Uh, you know, aircraft, we have 10 aircraft carriers. They're, they're building an 11th one now. Yeah. That comes back to, though, what are we trying to, what is the U.S. trying to do? You know, is it the U.S. responsibility to ensure security for the Persian Gulf, right? Jimmy Carter said that in 1980. This is, this is, this is going to be the Carter Doctrine, the U.S. Doctrine. You know, we are going to ensure that there is a safe free flow of oil through that area. Well, now we're not nearly as dependent on foreign oil, but we still kind of stick to that idea. The Navy will talk to you about choke points, the Strait of Malacca, the Strait of Hormuz. We've got to keep the trade routes open and safe. And it falls to the U.S. to do this because if we don't, you know, what happens? And, and when the U.S. benefits from all this, really, it's silly to talk about numbers of ships. Yeah. It, it, it does sound like it's the 19th century. Really, it's what can your ships do? And especially when the Chinese have these anti-ship missiles they're building, they can possibly knock out an aircraft carrier pretty soon. And then you start wondering, well, why did we build so many of these? You know, maybe we should be doing something else. Right. And, and I'm not a total cynic and far from a total peacenik. And I, of course, see the benefit of the United States having an extremely powerful military for a lot of reasons, including the fact that they say we're the world's policemen, but we're also essentially the world's, you know, security guard. We assure that commerce gets done by protecting the waters and by protecting everything, really. I understand that. What about what we don't know? What about the dark budget and the CIA? and the stuff that's off the books? How much, uh, how much might that yes. be? The intelligence community now actually does have to announce it's the intelligence budget now. Uh, they don't break it down, <laughs> needless right. to say. Uh, so much for black ops. But they do they do, do that now, and, and they don't like it, but they've started doing that over, over the past several years. Compared to the DOD budget, it's less. But, of course, some of this Defense Department money that I've, we were talking about, some of that does go into the intelligence agencies. Mm -hmm. But the bigger thing is that it does go beyond that number because there's money that goes to the energy department, but it's all related to nuclear weapons. Some money that goes to the State Department is counterterrorism related. 
it does creep up. You're really into the trillion territory if you were to be honest about how it's all accounted for. Dan DeLuce covers the military well for Foreign Policy Magazine. Thanks so much. Thank you. And now the spiel. Trump lawyer Michael Cohen told the New York Times that he, he, Michael Cohen, paid adult porn actress or porn actress or adult film star Stephanie Clifford, stage name Stormy Daniels, $130,000 shortly before the election. It was he, lawyer Michael Cohen, who paid Clifford. And whatever benefit paying her happened to accrue to Donald Trump, he just wants us to know that was just an ancillary benefit. It perhaps wasn't even a benefit at all. For the lawyer, Michael Cohen, to pay his boss's accusers, it's just a fun thing he likes to do because it makes him feel good. A little me time. Me being lawyer Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen time never hurt anybody. It certainly didn't break the letter or spirit of federal election law, lawyer Michael Cohen asserts. However, this whole thing where you are on someone's retainer and then you pay someone, but not from the retainer, just from your own pocket. It does fundamentally rework what we think of as the attorney-client relationship. I can imagine a conversation with someone walking into the law office of lawyer Michael Cohen. Oh, yeah, Mr. Cohen, I'm experiencing a pure shakedown. It's a harassment lawsuit. This guy says he fell because he didn't maintain the sidewalk outside my building. How much do I got to pay to make this go away? Well, I'll tell you, it's going to be pricey. All right, what's what's the damage? My rate is four fifty an hour. I, I, I actually honestly don't know if I could pay that. What? No, no, no. That's what I will be paying. That's how this works, right? You retain me for a fee of nothing, and I pay off your accusers myself. Isn't that how it works? Well, it's not how it works until lawyer Michael Cohen. But what if it did work like that? That would be really interesting, wouldn't it? I mean, you have Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen's a wealthy man, largely because of the large piles of money that Donald Trump pays him. And surely a fairly large pile of that money went to Stormy Daniels. But that's just a coincidence because that's just what Michael Cohen likes to do. It's like that scene in The Godfather. You remember the scene. So Tom Hagen, Robert Duvall's character, goes to meet the big Hollywood mogul. Now you get the hell out of here. I heard that story before. Very well, if your car can take me to the airport. I have one client, Mr. Corleone. He insists on hearing bad news immediately. But even though he is my only client, I would like to emphasize I happen to also have a passion for equine head removal. Purely an avocation, and I pursue it of my own free will and accord. This bliss that it gives me decapitating horses. Just thought I'd give you the heads up about that. (laughs) Heads up, that's kind of a pun, right? But I just wanted to tell you, while I have this client, I also have this, unrelated to this family business, I have this little hobby. Hobby, like a hobby horse. Wow, this is great. You remember that scene from The Godfather. And of course, with illegal talent that smooth and that revolutionary, it wouldn't be long before lawyer Michael Cohen gets invited to join one of the top firms in the country. And, and Michael Cohen. Injury attorneys, 800-888-8888. Don't wait, call eight. Of course, pretty soon the two existing partners in that firm would find out that something was up. 
even as the testimonials poured in. After I was hurt on the job, the insurance company said they paid $35,000. Salino and Barnes made them pay over a million. But then the new guy, Michael Cohen, sweeps in and says, I'll pay you two and a half million. And Salino was like, Mike, what the hell are you doing? And Cohen was like, I'm just doing my thing, Ross. And Barnes was like, Mike, this is highly unusual. And Cohen was like, well, could you just play the jingle? You have nothing to lose and everything to gain. That's right. Don't wait. Call it. Salino and Barnes. And Michael Cohen. Injury attorneys. 800-888-8888. After that, Michael Cohen was soon disbarred. And he said, that's okay. I always just wanted to open up a little bakery where I would pay the public 4 or $5 to eat one of my cupcakes. People frequently ask us, what is a serious or a catastrophic injury? These injuries frequently involve injury to the brain, the spinal cord, an amputation. Or an idiot lawyer who talks his way into a big fine. Ah, just play the jingle. 800-888-8888. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Pierre Bienname put himself through journalism school by freelancing at the cost of a dollar a word. He can only afford to write haikus, but it paid the accounts receivables. Just senior producer Mary Wilson wants you to know that just because something isn't true doesn't mean that it can't not also be unfalsified. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, would like everyone to know that the bill in his corporate credit card for all those Stormy Daniels videos, that was, um, okay, follow me. That was the Michael Cohen defense fund. Here's how it works. Lichtai pays Stormy. Stormy kicks it back to Cohen. Cohen goes on trial, and that means he collects hundreds of thousands of dollars in fees that his lawyers pay to represent him. Everyone wins. The gist. She was beautiful. She was young. She was innocent. She was the greatest piece of ass I've ever had, and I've had them all over the world. Only thing is, I should not have given her the stage name Stormy Daniels. You live, you learn. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.